Welcome to Between the Covers, the show for readers and writers and lovers of books. I'm Stephanie and I'm a publisher at Red Penguin Books, where we publish books of all types and genres. So whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or even 300 sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer. And yes, at least once a month, I get a huge envelope filled with loose leaf sent to my office. Just visit us at redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Well, I am beyond excited this week to be presenting a book that we did publish all about unleashing your inner author. Uh, Launchpad, the countdown to writing your book, uh, shot to number one in fiction writing reference. By the way, if you write nonfiction, you'll also want a copy because it's just amazing. And Launchpad is a collaborative effort between 12 phenomenally talented authors, uh, book agents, editors, all sorts of people who are piping in to help you to launch your writing of your first book. And we have two of those talented writers with us today. Carol Vendehenda is the author of Orchid Blooming, and she's also a public speaker and an MBA with over 20 years of experience in marketing, strategy, and insights. Carol has in keynoted and presented at conferences like the Writer's Digest, IBPA, International Women's Writing Guild, the Rutgers Writing Conference, and so many others. Her novels, Orchid Blooming and Goodbye Orchid are inspired by wounded veterans, and they have won over 30 literary and design awards, including the American Fiction Award and Royal Dragonfly Awards for cultural diversity and disability awareness. We are so excited to have Carol here and her contribution to Launchpad, The Art of Writing Your Book was all about harnessing the select and selecting the right point of view. So please welcome author Carol. Thanks for joining us. Oh, what a wonderful, warm welcome. Thanks so oh much for having gosh. me. I'm so excited to have you and, and wounded veterans and you're just talking my language. I'm loving all of that. So before we dive into point of view, which, which was so important and I loved, loved your chapter here. Tell us a little bit about you and Orchid Blooming. Yeah, it's lovely to be here as an author and a speaker. I also have a uh, day job and my job is in chocolate. And I often say it's the sweetest job ever. It is absolutely true. Um, I'm also a mom of twins. I serve on boards of directors and I really pride myself on being a purpose-driven leader. I have a huge passion for sustainability and speak um, as a climate reality leader as well, outside of my author and speaking. <laughs> but, the, um, but the writing and the speaking are so important because I think that we all, you know, have such deep felt feelings and um, ideas that we want to communicate. And it's such a powerful way to be able to do that. And I have found, you talked about being inspired by combat wounded veterans, that these stories have touched veterans, have touched people who've been through challenges and hardship, and that's why they've won awards for disability awareness. So um, Orchid Blooming and Goodbye Orchid are definitely stories of my heart. And for anyone who's looking for optimism or empathy, they should definitely check out Goodbye Orchid and Orchid Blooming. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That's amazing. And uh, absolutely, who doesn't need inspiration? Who doesn't? And uh, I don't know how you have time to even be on between the covers for <laughs> a job, but you do have to, you did say one of my favorite words in the English language and that's chocolate. So you've got to tell us at least a little bit about that. 
It is an amazing company. I have to say, I'm really fortunate to work for an incredibly purpose-driven company and the chocolate, um, the way that we get it is there are vending machines in our office in which every slot is free. And so if you can, you know, pull yourself away from choosing between M&Ms or Twix or Snickers or Three Musketeers or Milky Way, right next to the free vending machine is an entire freezer full of free ice cream. So then you have to decide after lunch, are you going to have the M&M's ice cream cookie sandwich, the Dove ice cream bar, the kind, you know, um, you know, uh, yogurt bowl. It is just an incredible perk. And I think it's fortunate because most of my career has been in marketing to be able to have run many of these brands. It is really um, such an honor to be able to run multi-million, billion-dollar brands that are globally known, so iconic and so well-loved. I've really adored every brand I've worked on. So I've launched uh, Twix peanut butter. I've worked on Dove chocolate in the US and in China. It's just been um, really an honor to be able to have that wonderful career. Oh my gosh. And I have to ask, because if I had unlimited free, all of that stuff, I would weigh about 700 pounds. So amidst all that, do you also just like run marathons daily to keep it off? <laughs> I do love my orange theory and I love Zumba, but um, I just, I think it's okay to treat yourself. And I have found, you know, I've actually come to learn that you don't only have to have dessert after lunch and after dinner. I have found that you can actually have dessert after breakfast. And sometimes I do indulge in that way. <laughs> I can't get perspective. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great perspective. Um, I believe that dessert is not actually a separate meal. It could be instead of breakfast, but that's, you know, I mean, it's calcium, it's dairy, it's, you know, <laughs> you know, if there could be fruit and nuts in there, it's like a bowl of granola. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm just amazed though, but you look amazing. And if I had even just a bowl of M&Ms in my office, it would be all over. Never mind what you just described is unlimited. <laughs> Don't tell my staff because then there's <laughs> better things here. That is for <laughs> Unbelievable. So what led you from all of this marketing and, and you know, leadership and amazing to, to, to being a novelist? Tell me a little bit you about know. that. I have always loved literature from when I was a little girl and I thought I wanted to be an English major. So 17 year old me sits down with my traditional Chinese family and says, I'm going to go study English. And the funniest <laughs> words came out of their mouth. You know, this is so stereotypical. They said, well, you know, you're really good at math and science. You might <laughs> want to choose a different major. And that's how I ended up with an engineering major, which led me to my career in digital technologies and marketing and strategy. The marketing strategy came after my MBA. But what's <laughs> lovely is to be able to come back to the love of literature, to be able to find that initially I was writing for myself, but I joined a writer's group in which we would read our work out loud to each other to get feedback. And in one of those writer's group, I was reading the scene in which um, Phoenix Walker in Goodbye Orchid wakes in the hospital after a life-changing accident, and he sees what's happened to himself. The entire table of writers, I was able to bring them to tears. And then I thought, okay, maybe I'm not just writing for myself. You know, these, this story has the power to move people. And so I started pursuing the path of publication as a result of that which has led to us being together today. Absolutely, absolutely. I do have to ask what those uh, 
those parents of yours after the engineering degree, what do they say about you sitting there with novels behind it? <laughs> I am really fortunate that my family is supportive. You know, they think it's amazing to have this creative outlet as well. And I feel lucky that I've been able to have it all. I've really loved my career in business. I loved my, you know, time in digital marketing strategy. All of it's been interesting. So I, um, I feel like I've been lucky to have it all. And I think it's not just me. Actually, I speak to at high school students I'll speak to classrooms. And one of the messages I share is that your path doesn't have to be a linear one, mm. that you will have time to explore many potentialities in yourself and that it's okay to try new things and to have that curiosity and the experimental mindset. I think it's really powerful and that we all are capable of so much and we don't need to hold ourselves back and we don't have to pigeonhole ourselves to just one thing. You are so right. We should put that on a paperweight and give it to every single high school student. That's why I guess my pet peeve is adults who will say to a, a high school or college student, um, what do you want to you know, major in or be for the rest of your life? You better choose wisely because you're going to have to do it for the rest of your <laughs> I think, oh my God, I'm not sure what I would want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's a bit too much pressure. <laughs> Let's just take it down a notch. <laughs> and they say it like that. You better like it because you're picking for the rest of your life. I mean, that's an idea of, that's like an example of a fixed mindset. You know, I think it says more about that adult and that the way that adult thinks about life. Yes. You know, as opposed oh, to having like a growth that. mindset. Mm -hmm. I like that so much. Thank you so much. Well, in uh, Launchpad, the countdown to writing your book, um, your section was on harnessing the power of selecting the right point of view. What an amazing, amazing chapter this was. Boy, eye-opening, I have to tell you. So just for our viewers who haven't yet, although I know they're right now clicking, they're buying, they're purchasing, but it hasn't arrived yet. So while they're waiting for it to arrive, tell us a little bit about point of view, what made you wanna write about that? And maybe a little secret, don't give away too much. I get that. <laughs> it is such a foundational decision that a novelist or like you said, a nonfiction writer needs to make. Whether you write in first person where you're using I and have that really intimate connection with the reader, or you might take the, um, the path less chosen and choose the second person point of view in which you're using the word you and almost putting the reader on the page in the story, that can be a hard way to write and not many writers choose that. But when writers do, it can also be a beautiful way to connect with the reader. Mm. Or the most common point of view is third person point of view. This is the one that we have seen in novels, you know, from um, decades past, you know, this is the most common one. And it does have a lot of flexibility in it because then with third person point of view, you can choose whose character's point of view do you want to be in? And therefore you can have multiple points of view and allow the depth of the story to come through in that way. So it's such a fun decision to make. And it's both a strategic decision based on the project that you're working on, as well as a personal decision. Some of it comes down to how do you like to write? What feels comfortable for you? And it is, you know, going back to the idea of experimentation something that you can experiment with and just try on, try on and see how it feels. Yes, I loved in, in your chapter that you mentioned if you're kind of stuck in a scene or with a character to 
take that and write it in a different point of view, if you had been in third person, to write it in first person. Because when you write in first person, you really have to kind of be the character. And all of a sudden your eyes are open, whether or not you choose to keep going in that direction with your book, just kind of dropping yourself into that mode really can break through some, some writer's block or character blocks. You didn't really understand you know, every facet of your character. I thought that was a great way of kind of, like you said, trying it on, doesn't have to be forever, but, but just for a little sample to get you through something. Yeah, it creates a way to get into deep point of view, which is something that the chapter talks about as well. It is one of the most powerful tools for writers. I am so glad just now you mentioned that this goes for nonfiction writers as well. Um, I ghostwrite a lot of nonfiction instructional type academic material. And I too have had to make that decision whether, you know, you might say, oh, well, for the most part, I do speak in third person, but sometimes I do, you know, kind of break that fourth wall and speak in first person, even in a nonfiction kind of a book. And just kind of making sure that the section that I'm in first person remains all in first person and that there was a, a deliberate choice to do that, that it wasn't just an accidental uh, swapping of some pronouns and all of a sudden saying, whoops, because I've seen that a lot with, with writers, that they just kind of slip. It's such a good point because consistency is what helps the reader stay immersed in the work and not get drawn out and start thinking about the technicalities. Right. The reason I know the Launchpad work, um, book is actually totally appropriate for nonfiction. One of my friends is writing a memoir and she has been getting so much value out of the Launchpad writing book. And so it absolutely can work for nonfiction. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny, I had a conversation as it was in development about it. And one of the fiction authors on it kind of presumed the entire book was for fiction authors. And I said, you know, not really. As I said, I, I ghost a lot of nonfiction. I work with a lot of memoirists. And as different chapters were coming in, to me, they were equally applicable, including point of view. So I'm so glad that you're friend was finding the same thing even if even if it did get number one in fiction it's congrats <laughs> on that number one that was a beautiful flag to see well you know not just congrats to to, uh, to all of us because there's a good reason for it to get into number one which is it is amazing and as I said I love working with writers and and getting them started and it's a great way to get them started which I'm thrilled now once those writers have been writing for quite some time, shall we say, um, Janair wrote a chapter all about three things a publishing gatekeeper wants. And uh, that'll bring us to our next contributor here. Janair Trump is the author of Shadows in the Mind's Eye. And um, Janair writes historical novels with a healthy dose of lyrical intrigue. She's the best-selling author of both Shadows in the Mind's Eye and the co-author of Oh Little Town and It's a Wonderful Christmas. And our author mentions that all of that happens in her unfinished basement when she's hanging out with her family, troublesome cats, and a Shetland sheepdog. So I know we have a lot in common because I've got two troublesome cats and a dog as well. So please welcome our next author. Thanks for joining us. Hi, and I have to say, I am in my unfinished basement. This is fake. <laughs> 
we were we were commenting before we got on um that carol's background is beautiful and hers is real um my house none of it looks that neat and clean <laughs> <laughs> but you guys are sheepdogs so that'll do it but i have to thank my husband <laughs> I, I dedicated my first book to my husband because he keeps the whole world going on around me so that I can write. <laughs> I found it interesting because Shadows in the Mind's Eye, um, it wasn't in my biography, but Shadows is um, a, a soldier who comes back with from World War II with PTSD. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I was like, oh, we're kindred we have, spirits. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Orchid Page in Orchid Blooming deals with PTSD. That is so beautiful. I wrote down your, the name of your book because I have to read it now. Thank you. I did the same for you. <laughs> I love that. See, I always say on this show, people are out buying books. I didn't think it was the authors when it wasn't, they weren't talking, they're out buying books. So <laughs> we multitask so well. Absolutely. I totally get that. So tell us a little bit about shadows and your writing journey. Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, I'm actually a book editor by trade. So my day job is um, actually taking uh, other people's books and making them better. I'm a developmental editor. So I look at the really broad perspective of a book um, and I work with nonfiction and fiction. Um, and so I go through and I make sure that everything flows together and hangs together and the whole thing is uh, a book <laughs> uh, that people want to read. So my job is primarily reader experience. So going into a book, does it work for the reader? Does it break the fourth wall when it shouldn't? Um, does it? Are there things that are happening that will interrupt the reader's experience? Um, so that's my day job. Um, and then the other side of what I do is I actually write the novel. So Shadows in the Mind's Eye was my debut um, almost a year ago now. Um, and it's a little Hitchcockian um, in flair. I um, kind of genre bend a little bit. So anybody that um, knows straight historical um, doesn't mess with myth and um, fairy tale. And I kind of play with that a little bit um, on my way to the kind of suspense area. So my main character, Sam, comes home to his young family and he starts seeing things up in the hills and no one's quite sure if it's his PTSD messing with him or if there really is something happening in the hills. And so it's this um, psychological playing with um, PTSD and what it really is and whether he is the, actually the one that's dangerous for his family or not. So gotcha. very reliable narrator. It sounds like, yes, it's, and it's first person POV. So, <laughs> um, and it's a dual POV. So that is for those of you who are out there, usually first person, it has one first person narrator. Um, and this is first person and it's got two narrators. Cause I need them both to be unreliable narrators. So you're not sure who is accurate and who is not through the oh, whole. I like that. I like that very much. And and also you said you're a developmental editor. That's really good for everybody who's out there with an unfinished manuscript or uh, know, knows that it's uh, in need of, I mean, goodness, we could all use a developmental editor. That's for sure. <laughs> 
I actually say even the editors need editors. So I love my editors when they work on my books. They always make my books better. No, no, absolutely. Editors need editors. And we all need someone outside of ourselves. That's one of the very first questions when someone comes to me with a manuscript is, so tell me who else has read this. And I understand why so many, so many people will say, well, no one. I don't want anyone to see it. I'm like, we need, we need somebody to see this. Did <laughs> you want the editor to catch it? Not your reader. Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Well, in, uh, in Launchpad, you were writing all about three things a publishing gatekeeper wants. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and uh, make a little, little, maybe one tip. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes, yeah, so in my day job, I actually work for a publisher um, and I acquire and develop books for them. Um, so everybody that is submitting manuscripts to publishers um, has a reasonable amount of talent. Um, most of them come through agents and so the agents kind of um, filter through things, but even agents are looking for these things too. Um, and so after you have your basic, look, I have a book. <laughs> Um, what sets your book apart? Because there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of books published every year. I get thousands of um, proposals every year. Um, and how do I filter through them? So I give in the book, I give three tips on um, what you can do to kind of set yourself apart from the crowd. So it's not a, these are the parts of a proposal. Um, you can find those anywhere. These are, you have this basic proposal put together. Now what? What do you do? What do you go through? What are the hoops to jump through to make sure that you are going to stand out to somebody like me who's a gatekeeper to the company? I love that. And so important. Like you said, there are things that we can Google, like how to write a query letter and things like that, but actually getting information, valuable insights from someone who is literally the gatekeeper. It's like, it's like you're our best friend that you're telling me, <laughs> you know, I know you want to get in. Here's what I know. And I will say, I think one of my biggest tips um, for both fiction and nonfiction writers, um, is the power of an outline. Um, and all of my people out there who are like me, um, who don't write with a strict outline are like gasping and like dying the slow, painful death. When I say an outline is your best friend, um, hear me. I hate outlines. Everybody gasps. <laughs> I'm an editor that hates to write outlines for myself, but I will tell you the first thing you should do when you're done with a book is to go back. Even if you started with an outline, go back to the beginning and write an outline. Um, if, if you are writing nonfiction, it's called an annotated table of contents. Mm -hmm. It's basically a list of chapters with a quick description. Don't freak out. Um, and then for my fiction people, um, it's basically a chapter summary, you know, or a basic timeline of what has happened and what that does for you. It, it gives you this condensed thing to look at and look at from like a 10,000 foot view and look down on it and see all of the holes. Um, and so when you do that, that is always your first round of edits anyways, as you look down on it and make sure that there are no big gaps and holes. And I'll tell you what, 
that has to be included in your proposal anyway. So you might as well go do it. Um, But that is, but then use it as a tool to edit and make sure that you don't have big holes. Cause that is something that we see pretty often is um, just these weird gaps in things that should be obvious if you look at an outline. So that's my big, big tip for you. Oh, that's huge because too often, I mean, it's that, that common, you can't see the forest for the trees when you're in it and you are just word to word to word and and you're not looking at the whole picture. Yep. Um, And it's, and that is the word to word thing is, is what people commonly think of as editing. You know, um, and so much of it is actually um, falls actually under a proofreader. So commas and um, really deep, like, did I spell it right? That's not even technically editing. (laughs) Um, And so just for everybody out there to get your mindset around the editing is this bigger picture thing. And those are the things that are harder for a publisher to fix. Um, we can all go through and change where commas lay uh, or lie or whatever. I'm not the grammar queen. I, that right there just shows you I am not the grammar queen. That's not what I do. Um, and I always have to think about it. I can do it in writing, not when I say I get that. <laughs> but, you know, that it. we can do that. What we can't do is fill your plot holes. Because yeah. that comes from your mind. Um, and so that's the really the the thing that the editors, the gatekeepers are really looking for is that continuity of story um, or argument if you're writing nonfiction. I'm so glad you you differentiated a little bit between levels of editing, proofreading, because you're absolutely right. People think, oh, it just needs to be edited. Oh, can I just drop it into Grammarly or something? And and Carol is laughing up there because you know people say that kind of thing. It's so true. The time. And yeah, Grammarly might fix it, but that doesn't mean that it's fixed. Doesn't mean it's good. And those levels of editing are so important. I the developmental edit is such a powerful process Mm -hmm. to shape the work. And then uh, right now, actually, I'm just turning over my manuscript for copy line edits. And then that's a whole other world and set of skills. And then there will be a proofreading step after that. Right. Each of those has such an important role to play. Exactly, exactly. And and certainly in those higher levels also, since we were talking about point of view, um, continuity of point of view and, and making sure that the person is speaking in the right point of view from beginning to end and doesn't slip because I've seen a lot of that happen. Mm. And yeah, Grammarly is not going to catch that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Grammarly is definitely not going to catch that. I also love the idea of first person point of view and dual point of view. Um, Jody Picole's book, Mad Honey, has that same structure and I think it works beautifully. Yeah, I actually, I, I am somebody, I'm a big proponent of breaking rules when you know you're breaking rules. <laughs> so I always tell people, you must learn the rules because when you break them, you want to do it on purpose. Right. You know what I mean? So you can break rules if you, if there's a reason behind it. And so, you know, like I, I described with shadows in the mind's eye, I'm breaking a rule of only having one first person point of view because I have two unreliable narrators. 
I just turned in a book that has a first person point of view and a third person point of view, which the first time I read something like that was actually Louis L'Amour. So who, anybody who, who doesn't know who he is, he's like the king of Westerns. I read all sorts of crazy stuff, y'all. <laughs> I, I, I read a really wide variety. Um, but there's a really good reason behind why I chose to write it that way. Um, and so if you're out there, I, I am super excited um, to get my hands on Carol's chapter um, because I am somebody who likes to play with things. Um, and so I'm super excited to read it and, and dig into the strengths and weaknesses of each version of POV, which I'm sure you go into. Um, because sometimes just hearing that is, is a fun, fun way to get yourself thinking. Cause I'm starting to write another book right now. So and are you going to start with an outline? That's my big question for you. Since you hate outlines, you recommended doing it at the end, which I think is brilliant. And oh, by the way, I can't wait to read your chapter as well, but are you going to start with an outline? So here I was talking to one of the other people who contributed to this book. Um, and he talks about like the different styles of approaching, um, the beginning of your book. And so you have, I'm sure people have heard of um, the pantser and the plotter. So the person that just kind of flies by the seat of their pants and kind of writes as it comes to them. And then the plotter who writes very, very descriptive outlines, 20, 30 page outlines. Um, and then there's this one that he called the puzzler. Yes. And it's kind of this hybrid between the two where um, they write particular scenes that just kind of come to them. And then they write the connective tissue between them. Mm. That's how I write. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never had a word for this before. <laughs> so I'm a very, very character driven writer. And so writing a plot outline is hard for me um, because I don't know what my characters are going to do. I kind of have a basic idea because I am a suspense writer. You almost have to kind of know what's going on. Um, Otherwise you have all these plot holes that you have to fill and that's a pain. Nobody wants to spend all their time fixing plot holes. Um, even me as an editor, I hate that. <laughs> as a writer, I hate filling plot holes, which is very ironic. But um, so I am going to be really, really purposeful in thinking through um, the different major scenes and kind of focus my mind on making sure I have those turning points so that as I write my connective tissue, I'm not creating holes for myself. Um, so that's how I always approach it. And then at the very end, I'll write my outline, which I Scrivener does for you. If you use Scrivener, which if anybody knows what Scrivener is, it is a um, uh, an app that was specifically made for novel writers. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can compile an outline. If you keep your scene descriptions and your chapter descriptions throughout the writing process, as you compile, which is like exporting for those of you who don't know Scrivener, if you export or compile that, those, um, descriptions, it makes an outline for you. And then you can it. you don't have to go back and recreate it from scratch. You just made the most amazing connection in my brain when you talked about, um, when you're character driven, you might tend to be more of a pantser because really the idea of the outline, like the very strict detailed outline is for something that is incredibly plot driven. And it's making me wonder then literary fiction is very character driven. 
So does literary, do literary fiction writers tend to be more pantsers, you know, as opposed to thinking about it as a, I'm not crazy about those workshops in a writer's conference where it's, it's like pitting plotters versus pantsers. And it's almost like it's a, a characteristic of you as a writer, like you either are a pantser or you're a plotter, but actually it's to serve a greater purpose that one way probably serves one purpose and another way serves another purpose. And I think that was really insightful the way you called that out. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I always encourage people. I'm like, take, take the advice of somebody else and use what you can use and throw away the rest. Even me. Mm-hmm. Um, although don't throw away the outline. um because it it's something that is used across the board by editors um I mean that is like a gold standard um after outline after if you don't like them before but it is something that each writer is unique and each book is unique so as I've talked to I've talked to a lot of authors about their process and how they go through things um And I've discovered that no author is the same and no book for each author is the same. So we collect all of these things and change as we go. And that's actually one of the things that I talk about um, in in my chapter is um, being okay with who you are and bringing that to the table as an author. And I call it being sparkly because I couldn't think of anything else. (laughs) Um, But it's just kind of that shine that you bring to a project. And some of that comes because of your process. Um, and that's an okay thing. Um, authors are earlier theme so perfectly, that idea that you don't have to just be one thing, not to be pigeonholed, but to allow, you know, it just to be authentic really is what you're talking about. Exactly, exactly. And I think that authors really do struggle with that. Um, even I do. And I've been in the industry for 25 years <laughs> um, and I worked both the marketing side and the editing side. Um, so I kind of have worked both sides of, of the world, um, kind of like you have. Um, and it just, it's something that I wish more authors were able to step back and say, it's okay to be wherever I am right now, as long as I'm taking steps forward. Yeah. I think it's because it's an art and therefore it's very subjective. People can get insecure. You know, I think authors are looking for that reassurance that their work is good, but it's, you know, there is no black and white, whether it's good or it's not good. It actually is so much in the eye of the beholder and the reader brings so much to the experience of the page. I learned that because once my debut came out and you may have had the experience, you said your debut came out a year ago when I was getting a mixture of reviews, like I got some great reviews, people loved it. But then every now and then I'm getting um, a reader who's like, oh, I wasn't crazy about this. And uh, when I look at the feedback, I realize it's not what I put on the page, but it's what the reader adds to what's on the page from their own experience. And perhaps they've had a negative experience or some trauma that it's reminding them of. And so therefore they're having, you know, feelings or emotions and it's hard for them to process through. And it made it, it just took down the pressure for me that it is, it's going to create a range of feelings and, you know, um, good writing, good art is going to evoke emotions. And so it's okay as authors to not, you know, not feel like you have to get hundred percent five-star reviews. Because it says, you know, a lot about the readers, you know, what they're putting into their reviews. 
We often say that if we get a proposal that says my book is for everybody, that means it's for nobody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Because books are very targeted um, and not every book is going to be for everybody. That said, I still don't read my reviews. <laughs> You're <laughs> than I am. <laughs> I totally get that. I totally get that. I actually, I have a friend who reads them for me that she's, she's an editor as well. So I'm, you know, I'm a little spoiled in that I have friends who are editors because I'm an editor. Um, but I have a friend who is an editor who reads my reviews for me. And like, she sends me anything that's like either positive or negative, but is very constructive. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's like the perfect, one of my friends told me to do that, another author. And I was like, I like that. I like that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I I think the worst I I hate to see is when somebody gives a book a one star, and this is really, I mean, damaging for an author. And the reason was because when the package arrived, it was ripped open and the book got wet. You've seen this. So they give it one star and that poor author who had thing to do with shipping and delivery now has one star. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. People don't realize the impact. I have to say, I did, I do read my reviews and I saw that it, and I don't, I usually get pretty positive reviews, but I saw a two-star pop up and I thought, well, maybe I can learn something from this. You know, maybe it's constructive. So I read the review and it said, I loved this book and I ran out as soon as I finished it and bought the next one so that I can read Goodbye Orchid as well. And I thought, okay, I guess she hit the wrong star (laughs) because she had no critique. (laughs) Right, right. She thought it was great. Yay, two stars. She loved it. (laughs) (laughs) So could this be a lesson to our viewers also? Reviews absolutely so help authors. So, um, for all of you, please, please, please leave reviews. Please hit the correct number of stars. <laughs> and if your package arrives damaged, please do not take that out on the author. <laughs> Definitely not their fault. Well, you you rolled me right into a question I wanted to ask the both of you, which was about your target reader for your book. I always kind of preface it with, okay, if I were shopping today, you know, could you describe who you would want to be, you know, buying your book, who would be a good fit for. And I'll start it off. And I will not say that this book is for everyone. Although I will point out the fact that surveys say that over 90% of people surveyed have writing a book as a bucket list item. So 90% of the people that you, if you just stop people on the street and say, what would you like to do in your life? 90% of them do want to write a book. And I will vouch for that because as a publisher, when people introduce me and they say what I do and that I'm in the industry, instantly people are walking over to me saying, I have a book, I wrote a book, I want to write a book, I'm thinking about everybody. So I will not say that this book is for everyone because I've been told recently that that means it's for no one. (laughs) But if you are one of those people the 90% who would like to write a book, um, fiction or nonfiction, I think that you are going to get so much out of this amazing, amazing book. Launchpad, the countdown to writing your book. Um, Carol, tell us a little bit about who should be reading Orchid Blooming and Goodbye Orchid. 
Yes. And I realized earlier, I hadn't really described the book. So I um, would love to introduce you. Please to, do. Please do. <laughs> yes. Orchid Page. So the reason Orchid is in both titles is the main character's name is Orchid Page. She's 27, an executive in the beauty industry, and she's half Asian, just like my twins are. And this is relevant because she has had trauma in her or tragedy in her childhood. She lost her parents at a young age. And of course, that type of experience follows her into adulthood. And now as an adult, what she wants more than anything is to win a work trip to China to feel closer to the memory of her mother. But of course, all kinds of obstacles um, are in her way, including her boss who says it's really competitive. She needs more advertising experience. And then being the smart cookie she is, she meets the head of an ad agency. She convinces him to mentor her, except the work he gives her with combat wounded veterans so that she can prove herself triggers her own unresolved PTSD. And so she has to decide if she can overcome all of her obstacles for a chance at happiness. And so to answer your question about who this book is good for, I do find that book clubs um, really love Orchid Blooming and Goodbye Orchid that continues with the same characters, Orchid and Phoenix. And it's because the challenges, the obstacles, the dilemmas are so relatable and so discussable. So people want to get in there and be like, what would you have done? Have you had that experience? Oh my gosh, I know somebody who had had, you know, the kind of trauma that these characters go through. And so I would say that what I found from having spoken with book clubs, from spoken speaking with readers, that Orchid Blooming and Goodbye Orchid can appeal to both people who haven't been through that level of trauma that these characters have. And they say that it actually deepens their empathy. It deepens their empathy for people with PTSD in the case of Orchid Blooming, for people with disabilities in the case of Goodbye Orchid, but also I found um, it's been incredibly heartwarming to hear from combat wounded veterans who inspired the series, even though the characters are not military characters themselves, um, to hear from military veterans that they see themselves reflected on the pages of Orchid Blooming and Goodbye Orchid. And so um, I'm finding also that these books help people who have been through trauma because they feel like they're seen, that their experiences are you know, in these stories in a way that's incredibly relatable. In fact, Doc Jacobs, he's um, a wounded veteran from Iraq who was blown up by an IED, um, has lost both legs at this point, just recently had surgery, has had 89 surgeries, in fact. He said that um, when he read Goodbye Orchid was actually my debut, it took him back to his own recovery. But not only that, it gave him insight into his own experience. Because speaking of point of view, The book is written in multiple um, points of view, third person point of view. And he said that although he had seen his own experience from his eyes, he had never thought about his grandma and his dad and what they must have gone through sitting by his bedside for 11 months at Walter Reed. But because Goodbye Orchid isn't written in multiple points of view, you see the point of view, not just of Phoenix Walker who has the accident, but also his mother, his twin brother from Orchid's point of view. And so it deepened his own understanding of what his family must have gone through. Oh, wow, that is just amazing, my gosh. You know, authors, you just wanna be able to know that you've touched someone and it's amazing to hear back from someone, how fortunate you are to hear back from someone about that, thank you. Uh, Janair, tell us a little bit about who 
is our, our reader foreshadows in the mind's eye. Yeah, I was, I, I think we mentioned earlier that Carol and I are kind of a little bit peas in the pod. Yes, I hear <laughs> that. Absolutely. To our writing. Um, so I always say that my books explore life's tough issues in the safe space of story. Um, and so one of the things that's magnificent about story is um, how our minds are put together. Um, and so when you read a story, not only are the factual parts of your brain firing, but your experiential side of your brains are firing. It's a scientific fact that when you read somebody's story, it creates empathy because you feel like you have experienced it because your brain is telling you that you have experienced it. Um, so I'm obviously a geek. I told you guys I read very eclectically. I, I'm a science geek too. Um, I actually have the opposite uh, story of Carol. I started as a chemistry major in college. So I have this science background um, and then went into the English world. Um, so a little bit, a little bit different than I wanted to start in the sciences, but so my stories, um, Shadows in the Mind's Eye, um, this book started um, when I sat down with my grandparents um, with a college required course um, sent us to talk to people about World War II, um, Vietnam or the Depression. And I had hated history up till that point <laughs> um, because it was all facts and figures. And I suddenly discovered the story of history. Um, and so that is part of what I, I want um, for my readers. They're people who are, um, who are interested and curious about history, um, but want to discover a little bit about themselves in the process. Um, and so that ends up being the book club kind of uh, catnip, um, so to speak, because it gives discussion points and places for people to just, just to discover and um, grow empathy. Um, and that is something that one of the things that I loved about this book was being able to interview um, and listen to um, World War II veterans tell their stories. Um, and so just, it's, it is amazing how much history is there and how much we can learn from the history if we just take a hot second and listen. That is I am so um, I'm so taken with your point about the empathy. So apparently there's brain research that neurologists have done where they put electrodes on the mind of somebody who's writing a scene and the emotions that are evoked and what that lights up in the brain. And they put those same electrodes on a reader's brain. When the reader is reading those sections, the same places in the brain light up. It's almost like writing and storytelling are as close as you can come to a brain-to-brain -brain connection. And so it's really powerful. And, um, oh, by the way, tonight I'm heading to a book club. So I'm just loving that we're discussing this. Well, I am so glad because I was going to add for all of our viewers, besides obviously grabbing copies of these books, um, both of you are available for other things. Um, we, I'm hearing book clubs, I'm hearing editing. Um, Carol, just tell us a little bit about uh, your availability and where we would find you. Yes, so people can um, definitely reach out to me about speaking engagements. I speak at multiple writer and publishing conferences every year. And also they can um, reach out for readers who want to have me join virtually or in person for a book club meeting. Novel Network has my calendar available right there. 
And they can find me. Um, the one simple place would be my link tree. So if they um, type into a search bar, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash C-V-D-H, that will link them to my website, my social media, et cetera. Fantastic. Fantastic. And Janier, tell us about where we can find you. So as long as you can spell my name, you can find me. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing about that's awesome about having a unique name is your website, all of your um, handles on all social media are all the same. So it's just Janere Trump. So it's J-A-N-Y-R-E-T-R-O-M-P. And then it's .com for my website. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, all the places, all the things. Um, You can find me and hang out with me there. I do freelance a little bit of coaching um, for my novel writing friends. Um, And I also do a lot of, I'll do a lot of speaking. Um, I go to a lot of writers conferences. So I would love to hang out with you guys um, virtually or in person if you're nearby or I happen to be swinging by for something else. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I think we all have our fill of what we should be reading and hopefully we'll be inviting also. Thanks so much for joining me.